Well, if you will, you can go ahead and have a seat. And we'll begin not with looking at the scriptures. We'll get to the scriptures later. But I will give this by way of introduction. God is patient with us. And God is faithful to us. And as I've studied this week and prepared, I was really thankful, really for the past several weeks, really thankful that a perfect knowledge of all of the inner workings of God the Holy Spirit inside the heart of a person are not a requirement for salvation. But a developing knowledge of these things helps us in a lot of ways. And I've been really helped as I've studied. And and I'm realizing that even now I'm still only just beginning to understand what God has been doing in me for years. And so I, I want to use this as a, a, maybe a word of encouragement. As some of this study is in the confession in what we call the Sunday school hour in the evening, if some of it seems tedious, just listen. Go back on the website, re-listen, and trust that the Lord will help you learn these things. These are not things that people come to an understanding in, in one class. It takes years of study and reading the same things over and over and over again. Pray for me throughout the week that I would be used to help you understand these things and teach these things. And if there are things that are unclear, ask. Bring it up. And we can talk about it. See, I can't know how efficient the teaching is if I don't know where there's misunderstanding or lack of communication. Um, and so if things are unclear, I say something that's unclear, I, I, I'd love to talk about it. Um, that being said, let's pray, and then we'll enter into a time of uh, studying our, our confession. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to sit and to, to glean wisdom and understanding from your word. We're grateful that our salvation is not contingent upon a full and complete and perfect knowledge. Lord, but when we look at those whom you've saved, we could say that there are not many wise not many of noble birth, not many powerful. Lord, we are grateful that you're pleased to come to the lowly and the, the ignorant and the despised of the world and to reveal yourself in glory and majesty. And so we ask that you do that now. Help us to understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to continue looking at the doctrine of sanctification from our confession. If you don't have a copy, it's in the, the hymnal on page 677, sanctification. And I want to remind you of some of the conclusions that we've arrived at over the past two weeks. So this is actually our third study of this first paragraph, and really we've, we've not even gotten through a complete sentence yet. We're looking at this first statement. In paragraph 1, they who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. Three things that I want to remind you that we've learned and, and even have been repeated Twice. First, sanctification, the word means to make holy. So, sanctification is taking something that was once common or is common and bringing it into the realm of the uncommon, setting it apart for special use by God. We just read about the Levites. The Levites, as a tribe, were set apart. They weren't like the rest of the tribes. They were set apart, and what for? For special use unto God, service 
to God. In, in Scripture, very often the concept of sanctify or sanctification is synonymous with the word consecrate. To set something apart as holy unto God. Second thing we've seen. Sanctification is not merely a process. It is first and foremost a definitive act of God. In sanctification, we are effectually called from death to life. We are brought into fellowship and union with Jesus Christ. We are regenerated by His Holy Spirit. As a result of regeneration, we respond with faith which seals our union with Christ. And we are in that moment definitively sanctified. From that point, God has come and set us apart for Him forever. That's what we've been studying. Definitive sanctification. Now, because of that union that we have with Christ, and this is what we looked at last week, because of that union that we have with Christ, the effectual power of His death and resurrection, the historical act of His dying on the cross, and the historical act of His walking out of the grave, the power of those events are made over to us, reckoned to us, and given to us. And so, when someone becomes a Christian, in that moment there is a negative and there's a positive. We are in that moment, the old man is crucified with Christ, and the new man lives, is raised with Christ. So then a Christian person, and this is important as we begin to move forward, a Christian person from that point now operates in what I'm calling a brand new realm of existence, a new sphere of life, one where the demands of God's law have been satisfied. So if you could imagine in your mind and picture on that first Lord's Day morning, Jesus Christ walking out of the grave, fully aware of what it is that he had undergone in the place of his people, fully aware that he had borne the curse for his people at the cross into death, taken it into the grave, and then walking out of the grave in full assurance that his father was completely satisfied with his work. Imagine that mindset that he walked out of the grave with. That ought to be the mindset of a Christian. You, you, you get that. That's the, the realm in which, in which we live. We could call it post-grave life. We have that. So then the Christian is not enslaved to sin anymore. Set free from its chains. The Christian is not condemned by the law. We are reckoned righteous in Christ. The law has no hold on us with regard to condemnation. He can't come and tap on our shoulder at any other time and say, you owe me a death because the death has already been paid. The Father, the only lawgiver, God, has been satisfied. That's a Christian at the moment of regeneration and saving faith. In that instant, all of that is yours in Christ. And there's more. That, that's just foundational. The question now is, what happens from that point? Several options that we might consider. <clears throat> At that point, God is finished with His work. He hands the steering wheel back over to us. We take over and begin the lifelong work of trying to produce a moral reformation. Trying to be better people. That's one option that happens from that point. Or perhaps we might say that from that point there are some people who stay right there. We, we could imagine right outside the grave where they are objectively justified before God and their legal standing is sealed. But... In their lives, they never change, never make any progress, but they don't have to worry about it because, well, something happened at a moment in time and their eternity is secure, while others attain in the future to some sort of second blessing when they finally learn what it means to let go and let God. And so they move actually to the second level of salvation. 
All of those are, are wrong answers, by the way. That's not what happens. What do we believe happens following our entrance upon new life in Christ? To make it personal, what do you believe happens following your entrance upon new life in Christ? Now I want to return to the subjects and ask the question again, who are we talking about? And my, my fellow elder has encouraged me in teaching these things to just consistently lay these things on top of each other. If, you, if you're imagining a weld, laying a bead on top of a bead, overlapping a bead, overlapping a bead, not fully and completely engulfing it. I'm hoping not to tell you the same thing that I said last week word for word, but I'm just going to slide over just a tad. But we do want to repeat, or I wanna, want you to consider the people we're talking about. In that first sentence, we're talking about they who are, I'm going to take out some words to make a sentence, they who are regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them. I want to focus on that concept of regeneration. In sanctification, we're dealing with the people who have been regenerated. So now let's ask the question, what happened at regeneration? What happened at the new birth? A lot of people talk about being born again. There was a movement in history, the born again movement, where it became very popular to say, I'm a born again Christian. And you meet a lot of people who will profess that. That's, that's sort of a, a, a category of person. We might think of the evangelical. For a lot of people, it's, well, I'm a born again Christian. They've got no concept of what it means to actually be born again. So what happened at regeneration, at the new birth? Well, Several things, but one scripture I want us to consider is 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. One of the ways that the Bible speaks of what took place at regeneration is to say that there was a new creation, a new creative act of God in the soul of a man. Now what is this new creature? What's been created in the soul? Again, the Bible will use the language of the new man. A lot of times you'll read theologians use the language of the, a principle of grace has been imparted to the soul or a gracious principle has been given or created. And again, we read that and we say... Okay, so what does that mean? I'm going to try to explain that. The word principle, and I was kind of joking with Christy because we use these words. I'm like, okay, principle, yeah, the school boss. No, that's not what principle means. It's a different word. The principle, the fundamental source or basis of something. In finances, a lot of times you will pay money and you, you want to know whether you are paying towards the principle that's the, the foundational basis. That's a principle, a fundamental source, fundamental basis, a foundation. Now, what is grace? Grace is the effectual power of God. God giving himself to work in the soul of a man. So when theologians use this language of a principle of grace imparted to the soul, what they are saying is that the effectual power of God, we could put in parentheses the Holy Spirit, the effectual power of God is given as the new fundamental basis, the foundational life source of all of the faculties and actions of the soul. That's what we mean by a principle of grace. If you're inclined to think in uh, computer language, a new operating system has been installed in this soul. You still got a word processor. You still got the internet, but it's, it's operating on a completely new system. And that operating system, I want to use that language, is the Holy Spirit Himself. Or we could use this language, a new sense has been given. I'm going to use the illustration I used with the men yesterday. This is not mine. I got this from Jonathan Edwards as he described this. There are very few men who will actually take the time to explain this language. Edwards is one of those men who can't leave this stuff unexplained. He's going to try to explain this. So here's, here's his illustration. Imagine two men 
who both love apples. They are hardcore, dyed-in-the-wool, seventh-generation Taylorsville citizens. They grew up in Apple City. Their grandma and grandpa grew up in Apple City. They, their great-grandpa grew up in Apple City, and they love apples. They know all the names of all of the apples. They, they, they love apples. They eat, sleep, breathe apples. They like to feel them, like to touch them, like to look at them, like to eat them. They love apples. One of those men does not have a sense of taste. Now, he can love the apple. He can look at it. He can hold it. He can touch it. He can feel it. It's smooth. It's soft. He can put it in his mouth. He can crunch it. He can feel the, the cold juice of it come out into his mouth. His belly can be full after he eats an apple. But there's a sense in which he cannot understand that apple that the other man can. Now, imagine that that man, through a miracle of modern science, is fixed, and now all of a sudden, he can taste an apple. Now, that, that same man takes that same apple and bites it, and now that apple has taken on an entirely new meaning to him. He has a brand new sense, a means of perception, so that the apple has an entirely new way of affecting the man, and the man has an entirely new understanding of the apple, a new sense. Now, this is similar to what happens to a believer in regeneration. He's the same person. God hasn't changed. But now that person has been given an entirely new sense by which he can perceive God, perceive Christ. A new means of perception so that God has an entirely new way of affecting that man, and that man has an entirely new way of understanding and relating with God. Now the difference is it's not a physical sense. This is a spiritual sense. And the sense is the Spirit of God Himself imparted to the soul. In other words, the Spirit of God becomes the fundamental or foundational basis and source upon which and from which all of the faculties of the soul of that man now function. And it's so comprehensive that the scriptures will actually just refer to it as the new man. The whole thing. It's the new man. That's what happens at regeneration. Now... I'm going to take some of that language and go back to chapter 10 of our confession where we, we dealt in detail with this concept of regeneration. In regeneration, the Spirit comes and enlightens our minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. So the mind, which was once clouded in darkness, is now all of a sudden, by the Spirit, given the ability to understand the preached gospel but with an entirely new sense. He may have heard that gospel a thousand times before, but all of a sudden, he hears it in a completely new way, with a new sense. And that new sense says, this message is pertinent to you. You're the sinner. He's the savior of sinners like you. You're the one that needs that salvation. Just like Lydia, we saw Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And the heart there is the thoughtful, mental consideration of the truth. The mind that was once alienated from God is now all of a sudden able to understand that gospel, given the ability to understand that gospel. But again, it's not just the comprehension of truth. Lost people have no problem understanding this sentence. You are a sinner. Jesus Christ died on the cross in the place of sinners. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. They can't explain it, and they might not understand how that's applicable to them, but there's, no, there's nothing hard about understanding those words and phrases. Lost people get that. But someone who's been born again, all of a sudden those same truths come, and there's an entirely new sense in which that information enters the brain. It's no longer information out here, it comes in here and is received spiritually. And as the Spirit of God does this, He does not override your natural faculties. We see this in Romans 10 when Paul says, How shall they call upon Him whom they never heard? 
and how shall they hear without a preacher? In other words, somebody's got to go tell these people. We wouldn't send a missionary into to an unreached people group and say, well, we don't know their language, but it doesn't matter. Preach the gospel in English and the Spirit will use it. No, we would say you're going to have to go there and you're going to have to learn their language and you're going to have to labor to get their language in writing. And then you're going to have to labor to get the scriptures into their language in writing so that they can, with their brains, their God-given faculties, understand that message. The Spirit does not override our natural faculties. He uses the natural faculties. He just gives us a new sense of operation that those natural faculties operate from. Again, we're operating in a new realm of life at that point because we've been born again. So he enlightens the mind. He takes away the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh. The heart there is, one man refers to it as the prevailing moral disposition. The moral bent. The moral tendency inside the soul. Prior to regeneration, that heart was hard. Ezekiel 36, like a stone, like a rock. But when the Spirit comes in, He takes out that rock, or the picture is He takes out that rock and puts in a soft heart, a fleshy heart. And the, the metaphor is sort of mixed there. Imagine the seed of the gospel coming. Well, if I lay a seed on top of a rock, I should not expect anything to grow. That doesn't work. But if I take a seed and mash it down into a soft, receptive soil, I can expect growth. That's what happens in regeneration. So we put these, these two things together. The mind comprehends the propositional truths of the gospel in a new sense. The heart then receives those truths into it as good and pleasing because it's now working off of that new sense. And so the prevailing moral bent or tendency or disposition is now bent in a new way. It's bent in the way of the truth that it is now receiving. Now, assumed in that change of heart, there is also a change of the will. The will. The, the will is the one of the faculties of the heart. And the confession says that the Spirit renews the will and by His almighty power determines them to that which is good. That would be the believer. He renews their wills and by His almighty power determines them to that which is good. So the once corrupt faculties of the will, which leads to the choice, which leads to the action. Those faculties were once corrupt, but now, what? They're working on a new operating system. They're, they're springing out of a new foundational source, a new principle of grace. And so by God's power, that person's, that the individual's own personal ability to will, every human being has the ability to will, it's not contrary to nature to will. It's according to human nature to will in some direction. God takes that faculty of the will and He turns it toward good. Prior to the new birth, it was turned towards evil and wickedness. Now it's turned toward good. Now what is the good? Well, in that moment, it's the preached gospel, the truth preached in the gospel that has been understood in the mind that has been delighted upon in the heart. The heart wills after that which it has just experienced and received as good. In other words, that bite of that apple has been taking, taken and all of, the, all of a sudden the will says, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me some more of that right there. That's, that's what I want there. It's bent towards the goodness and the truth of the gospel. And then... That Christ, preached in the gospel, is seen for the first time ever as the one great attraction. And the salvation in Christ is understood as the one great need. Above every other need, that person recognizes, that's what I need. And the confession says that the Spirit effectually draws them to Christ. Effectually, he draws, they come. John 6:45 says, "Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me." Everyone. If you've heard, that's the ear. 
If you've learned, you've been taught in the mind effectually from the Father, you do, you will come to Christ. You receive information into the mind and the heart is taught by the Father Himself so that it's not just a man giving the message. The man gives the message, but the Father teaches effectually. And that person acts by coming to Christ in faith. That's regeneration. That's what happens in regeneration. All of the faculties and the powers of the soul are now governed by and under the influence of the Holy Spirit Himself. The Holy Spirit is the divine principle. He is the principle of grace. He's the foundation now laid in that soul. I'll take all of that and set it to the side. But just remember it because we're going to come back to it. Add to that, we also know that the corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. So there is the new man, and at the very same time, in that person, there is the corruption of the old man still remaining. Regeneration, remember, is not a work where God comes in and just re tries to rework that old mass of corruption. It's a new creature. God does a new creative work, an entirely new work in the soul. And so when we are definitively sanctified, we're set apart as holy unto God, but actually we retain the effects of the fall still in our person. It's still there. So we go back to where we started. What happens to those people from that point? Well, that leads us to what we call progressive sanctification. And the rest of this chapter deals with progressive sanctification. Those who've undergone that radical transformation of regeneration, the confession continues, are also farther sanctified. So notice the language. Also, in addition to that immediate work of God, farther, moving from that point, going beyond that initial work, Sanctified, made holy, separated from the common, consecrated more and more unto God. We call this progressive sanctification. To put it simply, this is the process whereby we are made more holy. We are made more and more into the image of Christ by the Spirit of God. Now, notice the matter of this process of progressive sanctification. What, what is made more holy at this point? The answer is, you are made more holy. The, the person who was born again is made more holy. Notice it says, also farther sanctified, really and personally. Now, I don't think that the confession is saying here that union with Christ, effectual calling and regeneration are not real and are not personal because they are certainly real and personal. The word really is synonymous with the word actually or as a matter of fact. So, union with Christ, effectual calling and regeneration are real. But they are real matters that take place on a purely spiritual plane. In other words, we can't perceive them as they are happening. We don't recognize what the Spirit is doing when we're being born again. You know, we don't... We don't, we don't feel Him come in, and all of a sudden He's doing it. We, we don't perceive it. It's an, it's an unperceived work. And at the same time, that definitive work of sanctification deals in large part with our legal status. It's transferring us into a new legal state before God. I'm still me. I'm still in this world. I have the same soul. I have the same mind. It's, I'm just transferred in that moment, and the Spirit performs an unperceived act. The problem is that some people might begin to think or be tempted to teach that progressive sanctification is the same way. That it just happens and it goes completely undetected. We have no way to gauge it, no way to prove that it's happening. It's just all spiritual. The confession says, nah, this is real. You will really, actually, over time, as a matter of fact, become more holy. It's real. And it's also personal. That means it deals with the individual person in yourself. 
Now, this could be laid over against federalism, what Christ has done as a substitute for all of His people. What Christ accomplished at the cross was a once-for-all act in the place of all of His people. Progressive sanctification, we might could say, is, is a person-specific act. It deals with you. In, in other words, in, don't divide this too hard, but in, in progressive sanctification, you get personalized, detailed attention. Now, of course, Christ died for individuals, and it is personalized, but hopefully you get that contrast. Every brand new Christian will continue in this progressive work. And this progressive sanctification will encompass the whole man. It will. This is why we often refer to glorification as final sanctification. When this is all done, you're going to get a whole renewed body. Down to the flesh on your bones. It encompasses the whole man. Now I want to show you some text. Now we can get to the scriptures and just show you this truth. Here's what I want you to see. A saved person is not immediately perfect. A saved person must undergo a process of becoming more and more holy. The first one, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Alex preached on this a while ago. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Notice, he is addressing beloved. That's Christians. He says, let us. He identifies himself with the audience. At the same time, this is a command. Let us cleanse ourselves. Now, what does that assume except something he's cleansing? There is remaining corruption and as we cleanse ourselves, this will bring holiness to completion. This assumes holiness ain't complete yet. We're gonna, we're gonna get there, but it's not, we're not there yet. The sanctifying work is incomplete. Another one, 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is. Pure, the him and the he there, reference to God the Father. Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is sort of John's way of saying what we see throughout the scriptures. You must therefore be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself. An ongoing act. And it assumes that there are remaining impurities. You've got to keep getting the impurities out. You're not free of impurities yet. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The command, be transformed. Something you've you got to do. You're commanded to do it, and it is an ongoing work. And the language here assumes my mind is not completely renewed. I've got to continue on this work. 2 Corinthians 3.18, probably one of the most important passages in this matter. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Notice the language. We are being transformed. It's an ongoing act of transformation. And this assumes that I am not in the image presently that I will someday be in. God is making me more and more after the image of Christ. Philippians 1 and verse 9, Paul says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Notice. More and more. That's the language of advance, of growth. Now what is the matter of this growth? It's love and knowledge and discernment. Now again, this assumes that the love and the knowledge and the discernment of the Philippian Christians was not perfect yet. He's praying that they will advance. And then 2 Peter 3.18 but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There again, here's the command. Grow. You're commanded to grow. 
But growth assumes that perfection is not yet reached. Growth assumes there's a process and there is progress. And the subject matter of this growth here, the grace, or in, yeah, in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see, just from that selection of texts, this is a process. It is a progressive process. Now this language... When we talk about sanctification, the process, the language of a process, that's a lot more common to us. Again, when you ask most people what is sanctification, their definition is going to begin with the process by which. And that's fine. A process has to begin somewhere, but it's not merely a process. But this language is a lot more common. We very often speak of growth and the desire to grow. And most people are typically aware of their need for growth. The problem is that this concept of a process is actually so well understood in many evangelical circles that the biblical reality of growth is more often used as an excuse as to why somebody is not growing. You've probably heard people say, well, he's still working on me, or he ain't through with me yet. Well, that's true, but that don't mean you can, you can remain in sin. And just say, well, he's not through with me yet. Right. But were you regenerated? Then something ought to be changing. It's progressive. It's not merely processive. It's not a horizontal conveyor belt. It is an uphill climb into more and more greater holiness and likeness to God. So we can't latch onto the process concept and say, well, here's my reason for not being holy. Here's my reason for not giving up my sin because it's just a process. And well... It is personal. Every individual is different. The progress is going to be different for different people. Since that's the case, we can't with scriptural warrant say that a certain person needs to be advanced to a certain place by a certain time where it's not real. We can't do that. So a lot of people take that and pervert that and say, well, how dare you demand that anyone be at any place at any point in time? You see, that's a perversion of this truth. That's turning the grace of God into license. It's wielding God's patience as an excuse for indolence. We love God's patience, but that is not an excuse for me to be obstinate or rebellious or to continue in my sin. Notice in many of those texts, you are commanded to grow. It's not something you just sit and wait. God, I'm here. I'm gonna... No, you're commanded. Grow. Grow. And that ought not to be so in the life of one who has been united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, that they just use the grace of God for license. Why is that? Why are these things true? Notice next the mode of this process. We are also further sanctified or farther sanctified really and personally through the same virtue. What virtue? The virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. This is important. This is what we saw last week. Just as certain and sure that we are that the Lord Jesus died, was put into the grave, came back to life, and walked out of that grave, that's how sure we can be that at regeneration there was a definitive break with the old way. The old man was crucified and a new life has been given. That's last week. Now what I'm saying is just as sure as you are that all of that has taken place, so also can you be sure that that very same power continues effectually in you in the process of sanctification. Same power. A lot of people want to be saved in spite of there being no growth. They want the end. They don't want the means of getting there. And they are in essence hoping that a death and resurrection will save them from hell that can't rescue them from lust or gossip. It's the same effectual power that frees you from the penalty of sin, which frees you from the power of sin. So a work 
get this, a work that is too weak to break the power of sin certainly is not strong enough to undo the penalty of the law of God. The justice of Almighty God demands payment. What people are trusting in is that that death is powerful enough to satisfy that justice, but it's not powerful enough to mortify my own sins. Hopefully you can see the folly of justification without sanctification. The concept of being rescued from hell, but not being rescued from sin. Now I told you to remember regeneration. How does all this work? Well, remember the effectual power of Christ's death to sin and resurrection, that power, the virtue, it doesn't come to us in just a one-time dose. Here are two pills. One's the death, one's the resurrection. Take that, and you're good. It transfers us. It's a work that transfers us into an entirely new realm of existence where grace reigns. God's power reigns. And that existence is achieved and sustained by the ongoing power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the same Christ who defeated the enemy and eliminated the threat at the cross is the very same Christ who's still alive. Right now, He's living and His Spirit lives in you, dwells in you. The life that He was raised unto, having defeated the enemy, eliminated the threat, that post-grave life... Picture again his feet, his, his bare feet walking out of the grave as the sun is rising. That life by his spirit is in you. It's not a quick dosage. It's an injection of spiritual life. The spirit of Christ himself comes to live in a person. To use the language of Romans 8 verse 10, Christ is in you. Verse 11, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So you see, it's the same virtue, the death and resurrection. It's the same effectual power throughout the process that it was that initiated the process. And so throughout our lives, we carry in our bodies the death of Christ. And we carry in us the life of Christ. And as we're going to see, this is the ongoing pattern. I said this morning, death and life. Death and life, negative and positive. The next thing we see is the means. The means by which God the Holy Spirit is pleased to sanctify His people. Remember that the Spirit of God is not a force. He's a person. And the Spirit uses means to accomplish the work of applying the death and resurrection to you and in you. He uses means. The Spirit does not override your natural faculties. He uses your natural faculties. So then what means does the Holy Spirit use to accomplish the work of applying the death and resurrection to you using your God-given natural faculties? Look at the confession. By His Word and Spirit dwelling in them. Word and Spirit. The exact same means that were used in effectual calling. Chapter 10, God is pleased in His appointed and accepted time effectually to call by His Word and Spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Same means, Word and Spirit, same process, out of and unto. Out of sin and death to grace and salvation. The Spirit uses the Word to call. And now in sanctification, the Spirit uses the exact same means. Except the Spirit that's using those means lives in you. He's taken up residence in your soul. And He is governing the faculties of mind and heart and will as He uses the means of the Word. He doesn't do this simply by forcing the mind to think thoughts contrary to nature. So sanctification is not the Spirit saying, and think about God. 
and think about Jesus. That's not how it works. He doesn't force the heart to feel things contrary to nature. Feel warm and fuzzy. Now feel scared. Now feel contrite over sin. That's not what he does. The Spirit does not force the will to go out and act against nature. The Holy Spirit of God uses the Word of God to present truth to the mind. He teaches the mind truth. And how does that mind receive that truth? From a foundation that is the Holy Spirit Himself, the principle of grace. The Spirit uses the Word to affect the heart. So the Word of God is now used to teach and train and mold the heart. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to inform and shape the will. It all comes by the Word of God. See, you are a human being. And whether you believe it or not, you cannot act contrary to your will. It's not possible. And you cannot will in any direction that your heart has not considered will-worthy. And your heart cannot consider anything worthy of obtaining that it has not considered. And your heart cannot consider something that your mind has not apprehended. Now, very often, typically, we use our five senses to bring in information into the mind. But how has God been pleased to convey the revelation of Himself to the mind, into the heart, to affect the will? His Word. That's how God has revealed Himself. His Word. Now, that's as far as I want to go tonight. And next week, we'll take up exactly what the process looks like because I want you to be able to picture this. What this does, when you understand what's happening and what the Spirit is doing, among many things, it teaches you how to pray. It teaches you what to expect to happen when you open this book, how to pray through the process of these things. So I think it's important enough to go really slow and ask, how does the Spirit of God use the Word of God in my mind and my heart to actually make me really more and more like God. Now I'll close with these three truths. Number one, you cannot become like God if you do not know what He is like. So this is sort of looking forward. This is application, forward-looking, preparation. You cannot become like God if you do not know what He is like. It's not possible. Sanctification is becoming like God, being transformed into His image. As human beings, by nature, we become what we observe and know and love. We, we begin to mimic those things that we constantly look at, that we know really well, and that our heart is drawn out to. That's what we become. Sanctification is becoming like God. You can't become like God if you don't know what He is like. Secondly, you cannot know what He is like without His own ordained, ordained means of revelation. You can't go another way. You can't know Him a different way than the way He has ordained to reveal Himself. And He's been pleased to reveal Himself in His Word. That's how God reveals Himself, in His Word. Therefore, just as there is no regeneration apart from the living and abiding Word of God, so also there is no sanctification apart from the Word of God. It cannot happen. Now, again, I'm not saying you have to have a full and complete perfect knowledge of everything in the Scriptures. And I'm not saying you have to understand completely how all of it works. I'm saying simply, you cannot be sanctified apart from the Word of God. And thirdly, all who are regenerated will be sanctified. They will. Now, you might ask, so then are there some people who are regenerated and therefore they must be sanctified, even though they neglect the Word of God. No. Because there are none who are regenerated who consistently, as a pattern of life, without any concern, neglect the Word of God. They don't exist. There are going to be a lot of people in hell who read their Bibles. There will be none in heaven who neglected their Bibles. There will be many people in hell who had many Bibles but desired none of them. 
There will be many people in heaven who had no Bible, but they desired the Word of God, and they used what they had. If there is no desire for the Word of God, there is no life of God in you. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. There has been no life given. Regeneration automatically leads to sanctification. Sanctification, in that process, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to make people actually, personally, more holy. We've got to have the Word of God. Let's pray and then we'll stand and sing again. Father, we don't deserve to have your word. If we were to be assessed based purely upon our gratefulness as it is measured by our making use of the word, we would all have to agree we do not deserve what we've been given. We've been given far more revelation than we've put to use. Lord, we worship you and adore you and fall down at your feet because in spite of what we deserved, you came, you have revealed yourself to us, you have made every provision for a full, perfect, and complete salvation. Father, I pray if there's anybody in this room who would say, I, I think I'm a Christian, I thought I was a Christian, but I don't desire the Word of God. Lord, I pray that you would convict their heart, that you would reveal to them what is their need, and that they would do true, honest business with you. Sanctify us by the truth. God, we believe that your Word is truth. In Jesus' name we pray.